You're listening to an ACCA podcast. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Sana Nakata and I'm a Torres Strait Islander woman who works um, at the University of Melbourne. It's my pleasure to be here today um, in the role of co-director of the Faculty of Arts Indigenous Settler Relations Collaboration, who together with ACCA and others are delighted to host today's symposium. For those listening, I am sitting at my office desk for one of my first few days back on campus, and I'm wearing a black top and a suit jacket with my hair tied back. There's a pinboard behind me with some of my children's artwork um, and a bookshelf. I want to begin today by acknowledging that I am speaking with you today from Wurundjeri country on whose land the Parkfield campus of the University of Melbourne is located. I also want to acknowledge all of the Kulin nations um, and especially to the peoples and elders on whose land you may be joining us from today. I pay my respect to elders past and present. And I especially pay my respects to their care for and their care as country, um, care that makes it possible for us to live and think and come together today um, in respectful relations, even in the absence of true justice. Counter monuments, Indigenous settler relations in Australian contemporary art and memorial practices is a symposium that will offer over the next three days unique insights into the process of creating artworks to difficult and violent colonial histories. From the failed and rejected artwork proposals and the tense negotiations and compromises with commissioners. It will consider Indigenous approaches to memorialising, as well as different purposes public memorials and artworks must serve to both educate and confront an ignorant settler public and produce spaces of remembrance and healing for Indigenous people. With case studies and critical presentations by a range of artists and researchers from the fields of history, public and contemporary art, critical race, museum and heritage studies, this symposium contributes to important debates regarding the public acknowledgement of difficult colonial histories and the decolonization of dominant settler narratives, institutions and symbols. It's my pleasure today, not just to be here to chair the first session in this three-day symposium, but to do so as part of my role as co-director of the Springer book series, Indigenous Settler Relations in Australia and the World, which is really delighted to have contracted Genevieve Greaves and Dr. Amy Spears to edit a book that will compile the important work that arises from this week's symposium. So in the first session of this symposium, we will hear from Genevieve and Amy, who will be providing an introduction to the Counter Monuments program and premise for its publication, followed by presentations by Dr. Julie Guth, titled Missing or Dead, Reinstating the Hidden Figures of History, and Paola Bella and Dr. Claire Land with Kate Golding, titled Indigenous Perspectives on Captain Cook, 
his full agents, this full agency, this decolonized spirit. I would also like to welcome and introduce our interpreters today, Chelsea Turner and Nick Ma, who will be assisting with us tonight. This event, for those of you watching, will be recorded for release as a video recording on ACCA's website. So I hope that you'll take the opportunity to share it with others who haven't been able to join us this afternoon. I will introduce the speakers in turn in the order of their presentations. And at the end, we'll have about 20 minutes available for Q&A after each of the speakers have presented. I ask that you submit any questions you have via the Q&A tab, and we will endeavour to choose the selection of those questions across all of the panels um, in the final part of today's proceedings. So to begin, it is my pleasure to introduce Jen Greaves and Dr. Amy Spears. Genevieve Greaves is a Warami woman from Southeast Australia who's currently based in Melbourne. She's an award-winning artist, curator and content creator committed to sharing first people's histories and cultures and interrogating colonizing frameworks and practices. Her recent projects include the Violence of Denial exhibition from the 2016 Uramboy Festival, Barangara Naname, in 2016, a place-based augmented reality app that shares and celebrates the living cultures of Sydney Aboriginal women. And she was also the lead creator of the internationally celebrated permanent exhibition, First Peoples at the Melbourne Museum in 2013. She's a passionate educator of decolonizing and community engaged practice and teaches these methodologies in university, institutional and community contexts. Dr. Amy Spears is an artist, a writer, researcher and producer living on the unceded lands of the Kulin Nation in so-called Melbourne, Australia. Her socially engaged critical art practice aims to prompt questions and debates about the gaps and silences in public discourse where difficult histories and social issues are not confronted. Spears has presented art projects across Australia and internationally, including at the Monash University Museum of Art, the Museum für Neue Kunst in Freiburg, Mona Foma Festival in Hobart, and the 2015 Vienna Biennial. As a writer and researcher, Amy has published texts widely, including for the Museum of Contemporary Art, Auckland Art Gallery, Journal of Arts and Communities, and Open Engagement. Spears completed a Master of Fine Art in 2011 and a PhD in 2018 at the Victorian College of Arts and is currently a research fellow and lecturer working across the RMIT School of Art and Social Education. I now turn over to them. Thanks, Sana. Um, so I'm Genevieve Greaves, for those who are listening. I'm a Koori woman from New South Wales. I'm sitting in my home. I just learned how to blur my Zoom background so you can't see all the toys and mess behind me. <laughs> and luckily my two-year-old's not in attendance, so you won't be hearing her either. Um, I'm wearing some beautiful woven earrings from Kakadu that a friend Ben Tyler made and a lovely linen top with gum leaves and soft colours. Um, before I sort of begin talking about this project, I also want to um, acknowledge country. 
I want to acknowledge the country that I'm on here in Coburg. I'm on Wurundjeri country. I want to acknowledge Wurundjeri people. Um, and elders, past, present and future, acknowledge the country that Akers on, um, Bunurung people, past, present and future. I want to acknowledge all the countries that our contributors are connected to, um, which reach almost across the continent. Um, we've got a, a huge range of nations represented in this project. I want to acknowledge them and their countries and their families and their communities. And I want to acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here with us this afternoon and all of our allies who are working alongside us towards social change and justice. Thank you for being here with us. So it's an honour um, to work on this book. It includes people that I greatly admire, thinkers, theorists, artists who have had hugely significant impacts on helping and sometimes forcing this country to begin to remember what it's been trying so hard to forget. And we have an incredible range of contributors, eminent people in our field um, and emerging voices who are making incredible impacts socially and culturally. Like many First Nations people, my interest in memorialization is lifelong. It stems from my childhood, visiting massacre sites where I was told stories of what happened in these places and there was no official remembrance taking place. And this interest has grown with me into an obsession as it has with so many First Peoples artists, a continuous need, a desire, a calling to share the stories of our violent past and the violence of the present. And colonization continues to deny us as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the representation of our stories and deny us places to mourn and to heal. We still in 2021 only have a handful of places where violence is commemorated and acknowledged in our national landscape. But when we do have them, the healing that is possible that is possible is incredible to witness. Places like the Mile Creek Memorial Site in northern New South Wales. If anyone's been privileged to attend the ceremonies there, you can see what can occur when remembrance is allowed. But our artists push and shift and tirelessly fight the amnesia of this country often outside traditional memorial structures. And it is often in the space of art that ground has been shifted, truths told and healing has occurred. Our artists don't create monuments, we create memorials of the mind carried in the heart as John Mundine so eloquently expresses in his abstract for this book. I'm interested in the lack of discourse around the role of artists and curators, such as Fiona Foley, John Mundine, Julie Goff, Paola Bella, The Unbound Collective, Diane Jones, Re, among many others. And the role that we have, because I count myself among them, in the national consciousness. As many of these thinkers have identified in many different forums, the discourse is limited as is the broader understanding of who we are and what we do. My PhD research has been looking at this very question of the role of our artists 
in memorializing the violence of the frontier um, when official memorials will not do so. And there is much stronger literature when looking at artists doing this work in spaces such as Holocaust remembrance than there is in the Australian context. There's very, very little literature. Too often time is spent trying to define our existence within essentialized views of authentic Aboriginality. Um, the reality of our existence seems often beyond comprehension. Even the notion of art is compartmentalizing the depth and the breadth of storytelling, knowledge sharing and activism that our artists undertake in the arena of remembrance. So I'm excited to be part of this project to help elevate this dialogue with the contribution of these incredible artists, thinkers, activists, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous. And it's important to note here that there is not one non-Indigenous author in this book who is not collaborating with an Indigenous colleague. And I think that sets a very strong model for ethical work um, in our space. I'm also really excited by the generative nature of these events we are holding this week. We're here to hear each other, to listen deeply, to engage and explore together. And from this experience, shift and enhance the project, project that we are creating. For you, the audience, you get an insight into what is a deeply collaborative process, both between Amy and I as co-editors, but also with all the brilliant minds we have gathered for this future publication. So before I hand over to my collaborator, Amy, I wanna deeply thank all the contributors for sharing with us. I wanna thank the Indigenous Settler Relations Collaboration, um, Sana Nakata and Sarah Madison for supporting me as a postdoctoral fellow to be able to do this work and to ACCA for providing the space for us to connect with one another over the course of this week. Thank you. Oh, wow. Okay. Thank you. Um, for those listening in, I have short red hair and I have also blurred out my background because I don't want you to see my bedroom. And um, I'm wearing a t-shirt that says, I won't cry Miranda at Hanging Rock. And you'll understand through my uh, presentation what that means in a sec. Um, I feel incredibly privileged to be able to be talking right now, like post uh, Jen's lovely talk. And um I'm trying not to think that there's 290 people listening in or something like that. So I'm just going to share my screen. Give me two seconds. Great. I hope you can see that. Um, okay. So I'm just going to dive on in and read my presentation. Um, Firstly, I'd just like to acknowledge uh, that I'm a settler who lives and works on the unceded stolen land of the Woiwurrung and the Boon language groups of the Eastern Kulin Nation. And I'd also like to acknowledge at the outset that while it's encouraging that settler artists like myself in Australia are increasingly addressing the histories and legacies of colonial violence in their work, that this is greatly indebted to a much longer history of First Nations art and activism. Um, before I begin, I also have some thank yous. Um, I want to thank my co-convener Genevieve Greaves for working on this project with me. It's been many months in the making, but it's been an absolute pleasure to put our heads together to make this happen. 
I also want to thank Sana Nakata and Sarah Madison from the Indigenous Settler Relations Collaboration at the University of Melbourne for offering us this opportunity to undertake the project and invite some exceptional artists, writers and thinkers to consider the topic of Indigenous settler relations in Australian contemporary art and counter-memorial counter practices. Uh, the papers presented at this symposium today and over the next few days will be worked up for a book Jen and I are co-editing um, with Sarah and Sana's support. Uh, I also want to thank the team at ACCA and um, people at CAST at RMIT for their support, as well as the Australia Council for the Arts for funding uh, the project. I'm aiming to talk briefly so that we can give plenty of time for our exciting um, presentations that are following. But I just want to um, begin by giving some context to this project and how I came to be working with Genevieve on this symposium and also to provide some context on the concept of counter monuments. Um, so to begin, I'm, I am a settler and I'm a contemporary artist and an academic who has an interest largely in public and political art. Uh, I have a socially engaged critical art practice um, that as Sana mentioned, um, aims to kind of promote debate about gaps and silences in public discourse uh, where difficult histories and social issues are not confronted. Uh, I suppose my specific research into monuments began in uh, 2012 when I undertook a residency in Berlin. Like many artists, I became interested in Germany's rich Holocaust memorial practices and particularly what James E. Young has called the counter monument. Young has noted that a generation of German artists engaged in the memorialization of the Holocaust rejected the traditional forms and reasons for public memorial art and neither aim to console viewers or redeem tragic events or indulge in a facile kind of reparation that would purport to mend the memory of a murdered people. Instead of aiming to repair the irreparable, these artists' goal was to make the absence of a murdered people visible and felt. One of my favorite examples of a counter monument is Horst Heisel's unrealized proposal for the 1995 competition for a German national memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe. As Young notes, Heisel proposed a simple if provocative anti-solution to the memorial competition. Blow up the Brandenburg Gate, the symbol of Berlin, grind its stone into dust, sprinkle the remains over its former sites, and then cover the entire memorial area with granite plates. How better to remember a destroyed people than by a destroyed monument? Now, I'm, not the, I'm certainly not the first to think this, but such radical considerations around activating the memory of a difficult history, such as uh, genocide in the Holocaust, through memorials and public art, feel especially poignant and sophisticated when you consider Australia's sorrowful lack of monuments to our own difficult histories of frontier war, genocide, and violent removal of indigenous peoples. In Australia, it's routinely noted by artists, historians, and theorists that there are contradictions in public remembrances and monuments, which tend to foreground white imperialist histories and narratives over indigenous ones, as well as actively occluding and suppressing the violence of colonialism in public presentations of the past. It was these considerations that drove my continuing interest in monuments and counter monument practice. Uh, so in more recent years, I've been inspired by the actions of decolonial and anti-racist movements, such as Roads Must Fall and Black Lives Matter, which have contested dominant historical narratives and generated counter discourses through actions that deface or call to dismantle prominent imperialist colonial icons and monuments. Across the globe, we've begun to see the rise of another kind of counter monument, 
a perhaps more exciting grassroots activist-led kind that collectively challenge, deface, recontextualize, topple and remove troubling memorials while agitating broader debate and action on difficult histories of uh, colonial violence and institutionalized racism. Um, you'll probably all be quite familiar with this image from last year um, where the, there was a, spe a spectacular like Black Lives activist movement to just um, like take it upon themselves to remove the, the statue of Edward Colston, a slave trader whose monument has been in the middle of Bristol for many years and has been actively lobbied, lobbied to remove. And then finally the public just took it in their own hands to take it down and throw it in the canal, which was an amazing performance um, uh, and action. And I suppose that's a memorable uh, uh, example of a council monument, but also there's some powerful interventions that um, repurpose monuments. For instance, uh, this is an image of a Confederate era General Robert Lee Memorial in Richmond, Virginia in the US that became the site of collective grief and also celebration of black life during the Black Lives Matter uprising in 2020. The statue was covered in graffiti and civil rights slogans. You can kind of see it at the bottom and became the site of speeches, dancing, sharing of food and a radical library, as well as uh, you see here the projection of images of George Floyd and other victims of racist police violence. And so my research into counter monument practice has culminated uh, in my own artistic explorations into countering dominant colonial histories and myths. I suppose uh, probably the most um, biggest example uh, was part of a practice-based uh, PhD at VCA in 2017, where I launched a creative campaign to contest habitual associations at the sites of Hanging Rock in central Victoria with a white vanishing myth. Entitled Miranda Must Go, the creative campaign's objective was to pro provoke thought and unease about why the missing white schoolgirls of Joan Lindsay's fictional novel, Picnic at Hanging Rock, prompted more attention and feeling in the public than the actual losses and traumas experienced by indigenous people in the region as a consequence of rapid and violent colonial occupation. The campaign incited significant media attention, substantial public debate and some re reconsideration of the stories told at Hanging Rock. I would say that one aspect of my PhD research was to explore the politics of solidarity and allyship engaged when settler contemporary artists make art addressing racism and colonial violence. In recent years, there's been a flourishing of interrogations focused on the dominant whiteness and colonial logics underpinning the art world and the world at large. And increasingly indigenous anti-racist and critical whiteness scholarship has been brought into dialogue with contemporary art and contemporary art has become an important arena for discussing such topics. In response, many contemporary non-Indigenous artists, including many of my students at RMIT, are exploring artistic ways to interrogate and contest distorted settler narratives and histories and bring attention to the ongoing negative impacts of colonial occupation on Indigenous peoples. Such artistic actions, however, have not always been received well, and notable examples such as Mike Parr's Underneath the Bitumen, the Artist, uh, performance in Hobart during Monophoma some years ago, and Sam Durant's scaffold installation in Minneapolis have attracted objections from Indigenous communities uh, that the works purportedly sought to support. 
Such tensions raise a cautionary note to settler artists whose critical socially engaged and interventionist strategies can risk perpetuating indigenous trauma and an imperialist white savior complex. As an increasing number of non-indigenous artists seek to interrogate colonialism and dominant whiteness through artistic practice, more research is required in how these difficult topics can be engaged sensitively, ethically, and productively. And I liked how um, Jen mentioned that um, most of the non-Indigenous scholars in this uh, symposium and the book have um, chosen to collaborate with Indigenous people. I think it does set a good ethical um, uh, precedent. Um, and so it's for this reason that I find myself engaged in this symposium and book project. Um, there's now a wealth of examples and strategies to draw on to consider how the Australian public's view of colonial history and its legacies is confronted and transformed through contemporary art and counter-memorial practices. The next three days, we'll consider a range of public forms of counter-memory making and include a number of uh, case studies that ref reflects on acts of defacement or removal of statues, community-driven monuments to commemorate past injustices in the form of memorials and rituals, as well as contemporary artworks of both temporary and permanent forms. Most significantly, the symposium will feature an examination of artistic approaches to council memorial making in Australia through the perspectives of a range of artists and scholars, the majority of which are Indigenous. As such, the symposium will offer unique insights and rich lessons into the process of creating artworks that urge public acknowledgement of violent colonial histories and the decolonization of dominant settler narratives, institutions and symbols. But most importantly, I hope it provides lessons for future action and practice. I look forward to the discussions and thank you all for attending. Thank you, Jen. Thank you, Amy. Uh, apologies to anyone who's hearing background noise. I've forgotten my um, headphones and microphone this afternoon. Um, thank you so much for that presentation. And I'm looking forward to audience members contributing um, questions that they might have for each of you in our Q&A function um, for the end of today's symposium. Next, I would like to introduce Dr. Julie Guff, who is a Troll Woolaway woman, artist, writer, and curator at the Tasmanian Museum and Art Gallery. Her Briggs Johnson family have lived in the Latrobe region of Northwest Tasmania since the 1840s, um, with Tebrikuna, their traditional country in the far northeastern Lutruwita. Goff's research and art process involves uncovering and representing often conflicting and subsumed histories, some referring to her own family's experiences as Tasmanian Aboriginal people. Goff completed a PhD at the University of Tasmania, as well as a master's at Goldsmiths College at the University of London, and since 1994 has exhibited more than 130 exhibitions of her work across most state and national collections. She joins us this afternoon to speak to her presentation, Missing or Dead, Reinstating the Hidden Figures of History. Thanks very much, Sana. And I'd like to thank very much Genevieve and Amy for this opportunity to participate and learn together on this uh, journey of unpacking what we live amongst and how to resolve what we can. Um, I'm going to share my screen shortly. <coughs> I will um, firstly 
um, I'll launch into a part one, which is reflecting on uh, memorials that I've come upon and um, thoughts on what may or may not um, consist of such on my island home of Lutra Widow, Tasmania. Uh, the second part, I'll refer to particular artworks on, um, in relation to working in this manner myself. These are a large number of slides that will move rather quickly as I uh, talk through um, some of my thoughts. So how to account for the missing and the dead. I'm currently on King Island in the midst of installing art for an exhibition, Poor Souls, that opens this Friday about the more than 400 literally poor folk who drowned here while immigrating from England to Port Phillip in 1845. When their ship Katariki sank, only nine survived and historians now battle on in two camps where the number of dead 399 or 400. It is very serious business. More than half of the drowned were under 16 years of age. And has anyone figured that many dozens of unborn were also surely lost? Names on lists, fractions, factions, fictions. I'm constantly reconsidering, questioning, finding gaps, seeking meaning about various and previous states of places and people. King Island is an anomaly. No traditional owners resident, perhaps since the seas rose 8,000 years ago. Who do I acknowledge? How am I welcomed here? How am I placed? In 1825, one of my Travulwe ancestors, Wurutamurti Yena from Tebrakuna, my country in far northeastern Lutruwita or Tasmania, was taken on a sealing voyage from King Island by three sealers and with three other Aboriginal women, their children and their dogs. One unnamed woman and a child died where they were eventually held in Mauritius. These women didn't see Lutruwita, their homeland for two years. And when they returned, they were held in Launceston jail for their own protection, according to the governor. By being here on King Island, am I a walking, breathing memorial? Remembered by the ground here or being and remembering my people here before us. Surviving archival documents about Tasmanian Aboriginal women in the 1820s are about those held in jail for no crime, as witnesses or victims, or in dire circumstances, positioning for assistance. I've not yet found one instance of a result in their favour. Those connected and committed to our countries on this continent have much work to do to bring our family stories to normatively foreground the history of Australia. We need to reclaim space, our ground, our truths that historians and councils and committees have taken as their terrain. We first peoples are otherwise just decorative sound bites required to be authentic and not academic. Our history is not academic or even history. It's deeply felt pushing, pushing relentlessly through and through. What is this requirement of the academic? Subjective as any version, other version of the past, it bypasses all else to be the official authoritative lodestone. Its disconnect is its currency. My life project is to develop and refine ways to reach an audience with the lived history of my extended family, sharing through artworks what happened in the 1800s and the reverberations since on my island home, Luchawida. Since the late 90s, 1990s, I've recast ideas that hold ground into art installations and the most successful have been integral to place, about place, 
site-specific, they relate stories of people. And these temporary temporal artworks have been memorials, remembrances that soon live only on in memory. The monumental though is in us, Aboriginal longevity, our blood memory on this land is epic, epigenetic, undeniable. Should our memorials then resemble our forebears who survived before us and brought us and then be agile and versatile, mobile and temporary in the manner of rock art and sites of ceremony, able to be modified, added to, reformulated, to re-arise or be retouched when required by our living culture. The anxiety inherent in cast bronze and stone monuments uh, in our colonial outpost of empire is a brain, brazen outsider claiming of place and story that seems contrary to the lived finite and generational productions of culture, meaningful beyond memorial by first people past to present. Given the very near genocide of our people, everything creative that Tasmanian Aboriginal people make can seem to be a memorial, if not a monument. This is weighty. It brings an inherent gravity to our output. We are not supposed to be comedic, but accusatory, an unexpected manifestation of colonists' guilt. Are we walking ghosts? When people buy a Tasmanian Aboriginal shell necklace or see one of our performative works, they are buying something other than beauty, something different than being entertained. Is this our unenviable pact with outsiders? We have to keep performing survival. When will we get to the nuts and bolts of what we need outside the arts for meaningful, sustainable coexistence? Country is life. Uh, over two decades, I have usually annually created an art piece that stands also as a memorial work these intentionally ask an audience to consider something by its intensity, the lingering effect of something on people and place, pulling, prompting, provoking a viewer through the time space of two centuries, has been broached in eight of 18 memorial works by the medium of film. The momentum and immersion based requirement of film viewing in part replaces time spent on country or in front of a monument experiencing our exile, grief, loss, waiting and worry. Film is resourceful and economic, portable. It can reach more people across any distance and culture for immediate effect. And working with film has been my remit as artist to be recast as communicator, testing the ground. History is fugitive and facts are fleeting. Hidden figures of history are bound piecemeal in fragmented stories and some surface when the tide is out or the river runs dry. For us, they are often ancestors shot and poisoned, burnt and scattered. And yet we have few memorials to our fallen. Our history can't be forged monumentally. We can't account for all our dead, all our missing. Should we? Would fixed finite solid cemented memorials to our loss be for us? or for those sensitive few of the colonial progeny doomed caste to walk amongst us, reminded forevermore by us of what their murderous forebears did. When we walk country or even drive by fixed on roads between fence lines, we still see all those who came before us, what they did, how they lived, what we should do given country. 
And country waits, that's our monument, our everywhere unbound, our culture comes from and is worked upon by the nature of country always. What might we want or need more than a monument or 10? What do we lose by accepting anything that harmonizes with and for and outside a culture in another language? Question the structures, our given modes of engagement. A book is a monument, words fixed in bound pages, readers disabled from approaching all at once in the round. Everything is captive, forced, defined, linear, disconnected, beginning, middle, end. Buy two copies of the book, tear out the spine, shake out the leaves. Now you have the complete text visible all at once. No need to turn the page to lose what came before. You can spread it out, sort and pin, reassess, reimagine, engage with it as you might with country, become a decisive interactive participant in what makes us read the loose leaf once book. According to your approach, pace and pause, make marks. It becomes your text on your terms. You are responsible for passing it on as you first made sense of it. Give it your best chance. Creative cultural actions in the real deployed outside of galleries, museums, monumental or public art project projects have immense potential to expedite change. A banner on a birthing tree, uncensored, ignites a raw frisson. Responsive actions in their immediacy, immediacy correspond more to the state of current catastrophe. Rio Tinto detonates and obliterates sacred Junkin Gorge. Acid emission dissolves the irreplaceable rock art of the Barrett Peninsula. In Tasmania, we are faced by interminable lockout. Old England property names proudly hoisted onto farm gates and fences. Imagine if the many hundreds of recorded atrocities against our ancestors were not only increasingly logged on massacre websites, but placed in the real on the nearest fence to the event, on consistent placards proclaiming a past otherwise invisible to the driver by. That would be literally a moving memorial in place, unavoidable, infinitely vast, that would indicate the immensity of our loss. And part two, I will speak um, in remaining time to particular memorialising artworks I've made that you've been seeing on screen um, and shown for the most part temporarily in situ outside of traditional gallery venues, going back uh, from the most recent and the upcoming. Uh, in a print publication, these might be interjections interspersed throughout the body text I've just read to recite and encourage alternatives to brick and mortar, stone and bronze monuments to moments and figures of history. So breathing space, 2021 upcoming, trying to understand what has happened in Tasmania has taken me on journeys to First Nation cousins nas nationally and internationally, to Holocaust museums globally, and now gaining ground is the potential to modify or replace original monuments to colonists who commandeered or were ensconced amidst murderous deeds against our ancestors. Mid-2021, I will modify the statue of William Lodewick Crowther, who decapitated and dismembered Aboriginal people. He was temporarily vilified, yet subsequently elected as State Premier of Tasmania cast then in London by an esteemed sculptor into a larger than life statue that haunts Hobart on an immense plinth in the middle of the town. He clarifies the might of empire in case we are ever in doubt. The Crowther commissions of 2021 were awarded to four Tasmanian Aboriginal artists to temporarily rework the statue towards a future permanent commission of removal or site alteration. Um, 
also 2021 witness uh, at the um, Powerhouse Museum. I'm planning a journey to film the old gum trees, their portraits, dead or alive, witnesses to country, what happened to my ancestors on those grounds. Time spent on country, country always leads to something else, something more. The work will be exhibited in June in the exhibition Eucalyptusdom, uh, curated by Sarah Rees. In March 2021, last week, I was invited to install work in the dead centre of Tasmania at Ross Hall, Fugitive History. Ross is on the 42nd parallel in the infamously still colonial Midlands of Tasmania. The two works were the gathering and hunting ground and the audience were festival patrons of 10 days on the island and local landholders. In the entrance of the hall, I placed an antique locked wooden ballot box and an invitation to viewers to place truth telling information about colonial times, colonists and Aboriginal people in the box with or without their contact details. A few precious notes were dropped through the slot and coinage was also curiously deposited. This was a memorial in a memorial hall, the heartland of rural Australia, the safe place for local gatherings. It became something else, something tough. Some people shed tears. Indications are that more conversations and outcomes will result from this temporary incursion. The Silence 2020, that's a six minute film commissioned by ACME last year and it further mobilizes the search for at least 185 Aboriginal children lost in Lutruwida, Tasmania, who lived with colonists before the 1850s. It's an introduction to the task of finding these children, starting with slim archival records and reinstating them back on country where they lived amongst the colonists responsible, isolated from their dead and exiled kin. This clearly re reveals the genocidal intent of empire. Uh, Fanny Hardwick lived with the family of that name near Cressy in Northern Tasmania in 1820 and is one of the um, children featured in the film. The house is gone, a copy of her portrait, the original held in an interstate gallery, rests on a humming fence line while I seek direction for where she next may have gone, not fixed in place, status missing, not yet dead. Missing or Dead 2019, um, you've seen slides of today, uh, relates by name and known details, those Tasmanian Aboriginal children um, that lived with colonists before 1850. The piece emerged from an earlier work, some Tasmanian Aboriginal children living with non-Aboriginal people before 1840. And these are such a small fraction of those removed, perhaps 20%, the rest unrecorded, and likely they died soon after removal from their families. Um, this genocidal intent of Aboriginal child removal by colonists cannot be discounted when presented en masse. Aboriginal families were attacked in pre-dawn raids by groups of up to 30 colonists. Infant children were sometimes spared. One of these children is my direct ancestor, Dalrymple Briggs. Her two sisters and brother were also taken from their family. Uh, the viewer is participant as they walk through the unfolding horror that makes manifest the enormity of the crime of more than three decades. Um, removal by British colonists across early Tasmania. And each post is unique carrying information to be found um, on each child beneath a silhouette um, that's um, traced from a work by Thomas Bock. 
of two, uh, two young people who uh, were exiled to Bastrain. And placed in the forest of the Queen's Domain behind Government House in Hobart, audience commitment time and immersion was required to arrive and navigate these posters in an unfamiliar environment. At the time this, these children were taken, it was not expected that Tasmanian Aboriginal people would survive, let alone interpret and hold to account this island's past from which we had been resourcefully all but erased. Um, crime scene in 2019. That work um, on the 16th of July in 1825, between 5 and 6 p.m., one of my ancestors, Delrymple Briggs, ran crying murder from a hut located beside what was then termed the Lake River on what is now Brickenden Estate near Longford in northern Tasmania. Delrymple was about, in her own words, 12 years of age. Daughter of Waratamaratiyena, granddaughter of Manalagena, she's my ancestor. And this work was filmed where Dalrymple lived and escaped three years later after the deaths of Mount Garrett and his wife. This 1825 shooting provides great insight into the life of an Aboriginal girl in frontier Tasmania. Despite two witness accounts, the case was dropped when Dalrymple claimed that her master, Mount Garrett, shot her by mistake while aiming at a possum. The current landholder loaned me the broken ceramics and glass ploughed from the hut site to exhibit with the film in the Tasmania Museum and Art Gallery in 2019. And last month, I took the film on USB with a glass cabinet to loan long-term to that Rickenden estate to recommence our dialogue towards understanding, including ideally further Aboriginal access to fenced country. The Archer family of Brickenham will install a video on a flat screen, the objects below, to tell for the first time in Tasmania, outside of an art context, an Aboriginal story authored by an Aboriginal person about events that occurred on these lands, held since the 1820s by colonists and their descendants. This is a purportable memorial in situ to test the ground and hopefully expand the field for our histories to be reinstated on our terms. I'm not sure if I should um, stop or um, how long I should um, continue with. Um... You're welcome to take a, a few more minutes to finish up if you'd like, Julie. Yeah, sure. Um, um, shall I just keep reading a few more of the works to give some context to what you've been seeing? Sure. Well, um, a Tasmanian Requiem in 2018, I collaborated with filmmaker editor Michael Gissing on the work of Tasmanian Requiem. We produced the background film for the musical production of that name and carried place into the Theatre Royal to share the unabating grief that this island emanates for the epic loss of ancestors from country. Uh, Hunting Ground Haunted in 2016 is the result of trying to find some of those places that match the few written accounts of violent attacks on Aboriginal people in Van Diemen's Land by colonists in the first 35 years post-invasion. At these sites, I placed uh, etched and silk screen text posters relating 10 from the multitudes of these murderous encounters. The resulting film is an articulation of otherwise usually hidden histories, a demonstration of our island as a crime scene and a record of my reconnection with these places, establishing there on site that we continue, we're not entirely annihilated and that we remember. 
um, the gathering in 2015, I collated video images and archival information to film, to create a film projection and piles of bonfire timber, distinctive hills, dead things, farm names on fences, along with historic texts about colonial encounter flick and, flicker in and out of the footage like memory moments. The named properties read for me as evidence of what caused our disappeared Aboriginal ancestors, as do the scoured hills, the caustic sheep, the native roadkill. This was a journey to apprehend what transpired where so much history is unrecorded between Aboriginal people and colonizers. Everything seems a clue towards understanding, a means to notate and to remember the incommensurably horrific. I'll stop there if you like. Yeah, I forgot to introduce myself as in what I'm wearing, etc. So would I, shall I just, yeah, sorry about that. A bit, anxious, a bit anxious. I'm in the King Island um, Council meeting room and I'm surrounded by um, pictures of lots of very elderly men and also the um, Tasmanian and Australian flag above which is cited a picture of the Queen to my left. So uh, to the right seems to be a lot of legal statutes and uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's not my kind of comfort place, uh, but I'm fortunate to be using good Wi-Fi from King Island. I'm wearing a black t-shirt, jeans, a green kind of uh, jacket, because I like to look like I'm militaristic, um, even if I'm fairly unfit. And uh, I have short hair, glasses, and um, eat too much chocolate. Yeah, that's me. Thank, thank you, Julie. That was an outstanding presentation, um, confronting um, extraordinary histories, extraordinary representations of, of those pasts in our, our present. Um, I can see some comments and questions coming through. Other audience members, please feel encouraged to keep doing that. I'm making a note of those questions and we'll use those to frame our Q&A after our next and final presentation. Um, so let me introduce Paola Bala, Dr. Claire Land and Kate Golding. Paola is an artist, curator, writer, speaker and community cultural development worker whose experience spans over 20 years, specializing in indigenous community art, projects and cultural development. Paula is a proud Wemba Wemba and Gunditjmara woman. Dr. Claire Land is an academic and researcher at Mundani Bullock Academic Unit, where she runs the ARC funded Northland Campaign Community History Project with Professor Gary Foley. Claire is a non-Aboriginal person and has a long-standing commitment to supporting land justice and Indigenous-led struggles. Claire is particularly known for the book, Decolonizing Solidarity, Dilemmas and Directions for Supporters of Indigenous Struggles. Kate Golding is a settler Australian of English ancestry based on the unceded lands of Wurundjeri country. As an artist, she utilizes a variety of photographic processes to examine colonization and the representation of people and place through long-term projects. For many years, her focus has been on indigenous sovereignty and critiquing the memorialization of Captain Cook. They are here to present on indigenous perspectives on Captain Cook, this full agency, this decolonized spirit. Thank you so much. Um, I acknowledge 
the Boonwurrung peoples and Woiwurrung, the Wurundjeri peoples as traditional owners and custodians of the unceded sovereign stolen lands I'm speaking from and whose country Akazon, um, and also to the Kulin country that the um, so-called Cook's um, Cottage stands so heavily on. Um, I'm a sovereign woman of Wemba and peoples and communities, and I'm speaking from what's known as Footscray in Melbourne's West. I've got curly black hair, red lipstick, uh, pink glasses and a green shirt on. Uh, behind me is a bookshelf with photos of my children, family um, and Aboriginal community posters, books and art. Um, thank you, my sister Genevieve Greaves and Dr. Amy Spires for your invitation to include our chapter in the upcoming book and this forum. Uh, it is a real honour to be here, especially in the same space as such important artists and scholars that I'm huge fans of, um, friends and community, and especially to be in the same forum um, as people love Dr. Julie Goff. That was an incredible presentation. I'm trying to just take that in before I have to compose myself and speak again. Um, Dr. Fiona Foley and uh, John Mundine, who've been creating Black memorializations and speaking of the genocide of us as First Nations peoples for decades before all of us in their work, art and scholarship in this colony. And I acknowledge the work of all of the other artists and community people who do this work. Um, I acknowledge our ancestors lost to genocidal massacre, those of us who were traumatized and ended by ongoing colonial violence, the erasure we endure, our elders' families um, who hold and protect our stories of survival and resistance. Um, and to foreground um, reading the introduction to our chapter that Claire, myself and Kate have put together, uh, I'll let you know that it's based on a publication that was commissioned in 2019 from the City of Melbourne to create a sort of uh, interpretive publication that could translate and reposition how the so-called Cook's Cottage is understood by visitors, tourists and students taken there by school teachers. Um, and I say so-called because Cook never actually lived there. Um, but there's more about that story. Uh, we won't have time to cover all of that. But I've often felt like destroying Cook's Cottage. And when I spoke to my brother today about this forum, he said to me, just blow it up, sis. Um, Claire, however, and I decided to collaborate on it, not physically blow it up, maybe not yet, um, but to critically unpack it um, by presenting the art of Indigenous uh, artists whose work speaks back to it. Um, I, I was hesitant because I have to critically consider my place in projects for white colonial institutions, um, my safety, how my participation will play out, and all the other complex factors that blackfellas have to consider in working with white people, white colleagues, even ones that we work with very well, like Claire in our space at Mindani Balak, um, Victoria University, um, as a trusted colleague and ally. But we must be very careful about how we work um, with white and settler peoples in telling the stories about counter memorial practices and places. Um, and Claire and I came to the agreement that the cottage is simply irredeemable. So in working from that place, from that agreement, uh, and working in, with colonial institutions, in this case, the city of Melbourne, as the custodians of the cottage, um, as an irredeemable space, we had to discuss how we would disrupt and participate um, in this project by declaring it um, 
for all that it is. And to be honest about that, um, at the start of this process, when we first met to discuss it, I think my first question was, why the hell would I want to work on anything to do with it, apart from stand outside it and protest it? Um, and it feels like a dead life-size memento mori to a dead white colonial mythic figure. Um, however, as a black community member and curator, artist and educator, I also thought, what can I contribute to this collaboration? Um, and later with Kate, when she came on board to work with us on this, how do we subvert the process of valorizing and the hero status afforded this figure in Cook and this colonial building? And what would be my responsibility in disrupting um, public um, and very dominant white supremacist narratives that protect um, the cottage um, and the carefully constructed educational dialogue, literature, lies and curriculum that have been told about Cook and the little Australian dream cottage on Coolan country uh, that sits in the city of Melbourne uh, that wasn't his and never, he never actually lived in. Um, some of the questions were, how do uh, white colonial institutions and staff facilitate these projects? What's required? What's negotiated? Where does the power lie in this decision making? Um, and we had a lot of conversations about these limitations and challenges and speaking back into um, a challenging space um, that is essentially one of tourism, educational approaches, white storytelling, mythologizing, and the erasure of truth and black history and the lived experiences of genocide, invasion, unsettling, traumas and the responding survivance strategies as an Anishinaabe scholar, um, Gerald Beisner named. These acts and acts of resistance, these survival acts and acts of resistance and contestation, like the responses that our community have created and especially held around at the cottage site. Uh, for example, a transcendent act um, where crime scene tape was wrapped around the cottage during the 2006 protests of the Commonwealth Stolen Wealth Games. Um, in a ceremony that was documented by photographer, broadcaster, performer, poet, and artist, the late, great Lisa Valere. Um, this was created by the supporters of the Black GST, Genocide Sovereignty Treaty. This refers to the naming of Australia as a crime scene and particularly by Uncle Robbie Thorpe, activist and community broadcaster. Um, uh, part of the introduction to our draft chapter that I'll share with, and then I'm gonna hand over to Claire. Um, in, in thinking about these Indigenous perspectives on Captain Cook, this full agency, this decolonized spirit, uh, taking as a starting point Cook's Cottage in Melbourne's Fitzroy Gardens, this chapter explores two competing views of Captain Cook and all that he symbolises. In Australia, key themes of the white social memory of Cook are religious, uh, as in a sacred figure, a nation builder, and an example of the promise of capitalism as a man who rose from humble beginnings of his own merit. Uh, by contrast, the Aboriginal social memory of Cook is that he was the original invader and harbinger of death to First Nations people and cultures. As Gwagal community member and researcher, Dr. Shane Williams says, Cook's uh, landing is symbolic because it portended the end of our cultural dominion over our lands. And not surprisingly, discussion of Cook's landing sparks a sadness among my peoples, a sadness that laments Cook's voyage precipitating some 18 years later, the landing of the first fleet. Um, I might leave it there just so I'm mindful of not going over time because that is a little bit longer. And let, let you take over, Claire. Thank you. Thanks, Carla. I'd like to reiterate the acknowledgements of country of the preceding speakers and, and Carla's acknowledgement of, of the other incredible scholars. 
Um, I'm speaking from Wurundjeri land and I'm at the site of a, of a recent political struggle, the Northland Secondary College um, struggle, where we're putting together an exhibition for a gathering this weekend. I'm wearing a black shirt with white polka dots and have shoulder length wavy brown hair and a window behind me. Um, I'd also like to pay my respects to Robbie Thorpe, whose account of his people's first sighting of Cook on the 14th of April, 1770, has been a key grounding point for me in approaching our work for the City of Melbourne, and Tony Birch, who taught me how to read um, archives when I was an undergrad at the Uni of Melbourne. In our, in our work, um, we say that the Gunai Kurnai peoples first encountered Cook on the 14th of April, 1770, when he sailed within view of Point Hicks in, um, in Far East Gippsland. And we cite Robbie Thorpe and historian Ray Kirchhoff in stating that the Gunai Kurnai immediately sent smoke signals of warning up the coast in the direction of the Endeavour's travel. Local family groups and those up the coast indicated their heavy occupation of the land by lighting numerous visible campfires, which were understood by the Endeavour to indicate significant human presence. Just to take up um, Paola's discussion of the process we went through in um, responding to the City of Melbourne's brief, um, we originally, uh, the brief was originally to compose some text and, and visuals concerning cross-cultural perspectives to be included into the relatively recently revised historical display about Cook's voyages, that is inside the cottage. The revised display made only passing reference to First Nations, to, to the entire First Nations peoples of the Pacific. Um, but yeah, we just felt that adding voices in this way was just really not enough and you could never reform that into a culturally safe space. Like it's just, that's just absurd. And um, and, and as Paola um, intimated, um, we did have a productive dialogue with Sophia Hanover, who has done significant insider work within the council, um, coming as a kind of an outsider from Aotearoa, New Zealand, as a a Pakia woman, she um, she sort of pointed out that the cottage had nothing to do with the um, Aboriginal Melbourne um, commitment that had been won by Aboriginal people through through many decades, um, and so that something really had to be done. So we wanted to, we felt that we could though deliver something to sit outside the cottage and be sharply provocative against that white social memory that the cottage promulgates. Um, and so just to, I'll just briefly also discuss, just mention that some of the cultural content contests around um, monuments to Cook too. Um, so yeah, as Paula said, we, we wanted to, our take to be led by both contemporary First Nations artists and by a rereading of primary documents such as journals and drawings that would bring First Nations perspectives and agency into the picture, including up to the current moment in ongoing decolonial struggles. So this includes the work of activists in correcting and defacing Cook monuments, um, as in the Black GST um, that Paola mentioned. And we include the priceless comment, comment from Gary Foley about how Aboriginal black power activists have been able to leverage white Australian public attachment to Captain Cook whenever they've needed to provoke this debate. He says that as a young activist in Sydney, Whenever we felt like getting a little bit of public attention, you could always just be guaranteed to get a headline if you bought a can of paint down here to Hyde Park in Sydney and chucked it over Captain Cook. Uh, we also wanted to point to the significant agency Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people used in their rejection of Cook and in their networking in resistance against Cook's arrival. 
Through those relayed smoke signal messages, First Nations communities were able to pinpoint Cook's arrival in their area and meet him in large numbers. Often this was mistaken by those on ship as a coincidence, sort of like we came across a corroboree kind of a thing. Um, the effectiveness of this wide communications network means that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities across the continent, even those who didn't see Cook directly, have oral records of his arrival, something that anthropologist Deborah Bird-Rose wrote about, but that, of course, also lives in the oral record. And so mud borough man Hobbs Daniari theorised to Deborah Bird-Rose that Aboriginal people all know that Captain Cook is dead. It's the white people, European people, who don't know that he's dead or who don't accept that he's dead or who refuse to allow him to die because they still follow his law. So we think that all the monuments to Cook, the thankfully COVID-cancelled reenactment, fake news reenactment of his um, circumnavigation of this continent, and especially his parents' little cottage, reflect what Hobbles Daniari said. They say, Cook is alive, and we want our work to contextualise Cook, both, of course, uh, as, as a massively symbolic figure of invasion, but also as just one dead little man. So I'll pass to Kate. Thanks, Claire. Um, can you hear me okay? Yeah, good. I'd also like to acknowledge the Boon Wurrung and Wurrung Wurundjeri people of who, on whose land I live and work and Acker is on. Uh, I offer my respects to elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded. Um, I'm a settler Australian of English ancestry and I was born and raised on um, and educated on Wiradjuri country in what is now New South Wales. Uh, I'm speaking from Melbourne's north today. I have light brown wavy kind of hair, um, a black top on and there's some artworks hanging in the background. I'm also incredibly grateful to Genevieve and Amy and Paula and Claire to be involved today. Thank you. So two years ago um, in March 2019, Paula, Claire and I had our first meeting about this project. Since 2012, I've been working on a photographic project that critiques the memorialisation of Captain Cook. And I've travelled to many places where Cook is memorialised um, visited museum collections in the UK and attended reenactment ceremonies. I completed um, an MFA by research at the VCA in 2017, where I proposed a camera obscura as a counter monument, uh, unmediated by a lens and making use of the naturally occurring optical phenomenon uh, to project First Nation territories into the colonial buildings of the VCA. Um, Within this particular project that for the city of Melbourne that Claire and Paula have talked about, my role was to research visual art and activist responses to Cook and to create two databases, list, um, one listing artworks and one of activism, which we referred to as citizen actions. The art data database was populated with 99 key artworks that responded to Cook by both Indigenous and First Nation artists, as well as non-Indigenous artists. It ranged from the 1700s, including formal portraits by European painters, to works by Tupaya on board the Endeavour, uh, through to contemporary artists with a focus on works of Indigenous artists. So I'm just going to speak to some of those artworks now that, we've, um, that we speak about in the chapter. 
in the painting, we call them pirates out here, Kujila and Gangalu artist Daniel Boyd appropriates E. Phillips Fox's 1902 painting, The Landing of Captain Cook at Botany Bay. Fox's original version of the painting positions Cook as benevolent explorer, persuading his men to withhold their violent impulses. Boyd's satirical work repositions Cook as a maritime pirate by the addition of an eye patch and a skull and crossbones over the Union Jack and removes the two Gweagle men from the narrative. Oh, sorry, yes, removes. <clears throat> in addition, smoke fills the sky in the background, allude, alluding to First Nations people's land management practices and the um, smoke signals that we were just referring to earlier. Uh, this work articulates a view in opposition to that of the dominant narrative, instead illustrating that the invasion of the Australian continent began at Kamei, Botany Bay in 1770. Along similar lines, Beripi artist Jason Wing's Captain James Crook portrays Cook as a burglar by placing a black balaclava over a bronze bust of the captain's likeness. These works comment on Cook unlawfully taking possession of the place he renamed New South Wales, which is Eastern Australia today, in 1770. Taking a different approach, Māori artist uh, Dr Kirsten Little series um, Killing Cookie, uh, which was 2009 to 2011, features three aloha shirts, as they're known in Hawaii, depicting Cook in different states of being dying as a, dis and as, as a disembodied head and skull. Little states that the Hawaiian shirts are a contemporary nod to the place of Cook's death and comment upon ongoing forms of colonization where indigenous cultures and their sacred cultural icons are transmuted into kitsch. Where Little subverts the Hawaiian shirt kitsch to re reflect on the impact of colonization while celebrating the death of Cook in the Hawaiian islands. Bujara artist Michael Cook's Undiscovered Four questions the concept of European discovery. The photographic work reimagines Cook's landfall by portraying the First Nations man as the colonising explorer. Much like the mockumentary barbecue area, where the roles of Indigenous and coloniser were reversed, Undiscovered Number Four asks the viewer to visualise how the encounters may have differed if the European voyagers had been able to see through Indigenous eyes. What if colonising nations had accepted and valued the sovereignty of the Indigenous peoples and the complex laws and cultures? Gordon Bennett's work, Home Decor Al Algebra, Daddy's Little Girl from 1998, suggests that the Captain Cook, discoveries, the Captain Cook discovered Australia story, the hero heroization sorry, of Cook impacts on both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal peoples in their self-understanding, their place in patriarchal European social dynamics and in their understanding of themselves in relation to the state. The painting is dominated by a portrait of Captain Cook who has a stereotypical image of an Aboriginal man in his mind's eye. A white child is playing with building blocks. She has produced racist words a lurking father figure watches over her education. Cook is regarded across the First Nations of the Pacific as the original invader. Indigenous artists and intellectuals have expressed a sense of invasion as ever when, every when, sorry, still happening today. 
through sharp and creative artworks, protests and performances. For instance, Vincent Namajira's Captain Cook with the Queen and Me collapses 250 years of history into one moment. The work points to a direct correlation between Cook's three Pacific voyages and the current monarch of the United Kingdom, Queen Elizabeth II. Vincent's, Vincent Namajira stands as if posing for a photograph, smiling with full agency between two Britons who were the catalyst for the for and the perpetrator of the ongoing colonial project. A recent community-led uh, community monument to their encounter with Cook is neither an idealization of nor a protest against Cook, but rather a reflection of the Gugiamatha people that Cook was important. Um, sorry, it was a reflection by the Gugiamatha people that Cook was important but not foundational to their history. The Milby Wall affirms that most of First Nations people's history existed BC before Cook, and life goes on in the immediate and long-term aftermath of colonization. This is a firm and gentle rebuttal of the dominant historical narrative. Thank you. Thank you so much, everyone. Um, incredibly thought-provoking set of papers, um, including Amy and Jen's um, opening framing of the purpose of the symposium and, and the book that these um, papers and, and chapters contribute to. Um, I have numerous questions of my own, um, provocations that I want to explore, but I will do my du duty as a uh, chair and consider some of, um, put to you or, 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 or frame some of the questions in the Q&A for each of your consideration. Um, and of course, anyone from the audience who would li like to contribute here, please feel welcome to continue using that Q&A function. I'll, I'll do the best I can. Um, there are a number of questions from the audience um, that strike me as reflecting on the, the many constraints um, that shape the kind of environment in which counter monuments and counter memorializations can be produced. So these constraints might be the constraints of um, what one questioner is, is talking about as capitalist society. So pressures around um, sort of reducing these effects to, to kitsch as, as we just um, heard someone else playing on, um, um, reducing it to um, a a point of marketing, potentially reducing it in the way that Julie spoke about, you know, the desire of white guilt to buy into non-comedic accusation-based sort of performances. Um, I wondered if anyone wanted to offer some reflections about the extent to which capitalism constrains or, or what kinds of possibilities it opens up in the, in the example that Kate offered of the kind of Aloha t-shirts um, to do the real transformative work that so much of this of, of these uh, performances and exhibitions that you've described present. And I know it's always hard on Zoom about who should go first, but I wonder Paolo, if you have something to, to respond to that. I, I will if, if Julie doesn't want to go first, <laughs> are you sure? <laughs> thank, uh, thank you. Um, 
Uh, yeah, and thank you, um, Sana, like, thank you for holding the space for us and facilitating so beautifully. Um, and thank you, Nick, um, for your interpretation and um, Chelsea, I think that started, was it Chelsea? Yeah, so thank you. Um, I Look, I really, <laughs> I, I think drawing on my experiences from teaching from primary school all the way up to teaching post-grad pre-service teachers that I do as part of my academic work um, and everything else that I do in between, I think that Cook has held up somehow, just to focus on him for a second in regards to when I think about what, what does, how is capitalism um, symbolised in this country? And I think that he's held in this way as being almost the original Aussie battler. So it's like, you know, that because so much racism and hatred towards us as, as, you know, Indigenous peoples in this country, it is really predicated, there's a very particular anti-Aboriginal racism that happens that has to be spoken about as well. And part of that is that the lies that are told that um, and that are still perpetuated, that we're lazy and that if we just could overcome being ourselves, if we could have just assimilated and become white, um, because that's a capitalist goal, right, to be white, middle class and successful and to own a home. So I see the statues of Cook, the cottage, as representing this Australian dream that's all completely false. Most people now can't, that has become a fantasy to buy a home in this country for most people, um, um, most people who struggle and people who are marginalised um, in addition to, you know, us as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. So I think there's this idea, this false narrative that if you can just outwork your blackness, outwork yourself, you can succeed. And so the lies that are told about the erasure of us through violence and massacre, it's all just so conveniently covered over. And the, the debate about reconciliation misses such essential steps of things that are unresolved, unspoken of, and um, this yawning gap about class too. And I think Australia doesn't talk about itself as a classless nation enough. It's in denial about that as well. And I think that all plays a part in why these figures and these places are held in such high esteem and why we saw police around Cook's statue during the Black Lives Matter um, work. It's not just protesting. People have to remember this is work done by communities but it's not valued in the same way that white capitalism is, is valued, you know, that work of resistance. Yeah. Thanks, Paula. Um, Julie, do you have anything um, to add to that as well? I mean, I think it's really interesting. I think each of the contributions here, I think, um, play on this tension a little bit about who, who the audience thinks it is and what does the audience think it wants? Um, from the, these sorts of artistic and creative endeavours. What are your thoughts on that? Right, yeah. Um, yeah, the audience, it's like the big, it's the elephant in the room kind of thing. Yeah? Like um, the times that I've um, put a lot of heart and soul into artworks where, uh, and they've um, been completely misread, misapprehended, um, turned upside down by their audience that I thought would kind of learn something particular, but they just saw themselves in the work and subverted it completely, kind of rendered it, uh, kind of killed my work because there were too many of 
them to kind of to see me or us. Um, I think that's being a bit cryptic. It was in the Driving Black Home video, played it in a colonial space. The colonists turn up and just were so ecstatic to wait and wait and watch um, and honour their own ancestors who took our land rather than um, see our sorrow. So, yeah, it's just, it's, it's such a fine uh, line and uh, balancing act. And, but we persist in trying to figure out how to communicate. So this slippage is really interesting. And it's, we, the arts are the way to gauge the state of health of society and where we can um, affect change outside of art in other ways. I think we're, you know, we're like the canary or something. The, um, we just need to be vigilant because if we're given space to do something, then we should be suspicious of why, you know, we need to take and demand and do things. Um, I'm, I'm altering a statue of a um, horrific figure in the middle of Hobart and it's entirely, I'm entirely suspicious about this and yet I am still participating but I think it will, it, it, you know, I'm just, why that opportunity and why a kind of a temporary alteration, but perhaps it will lead to something more significant, I hope, than, than you know, not, not, you know, not we're not allowed to damage the, the, the man, the, the statue, etc. Thank you, Julie. Um, I, I, I think of that as the kind of strategic agency that, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples have always never had any choice but to have to assess and evaluate. Um, so thank you so much for those responses. Um, the, there are other questions in here um, that Paula also responded to briefly in her presentation around the kinds of other, other constraints that are imposed around government agencies, legislation, um, I, I think in different ways you've already addressed the kind of strategic and agentic responses to the constraints around this work. If I may, I want to ask a question about myth-making. Um, one of the things that came through each of these um, papers is, to my mind, a real effort to make a myth of white Australian history and to make a truth of black history on this continent. Um, and I, I wonder, Jen, if, if you've got anything to offer around this relationship between myth-making and truth-making in, in these forms of counter-monuments and memorialisation. Um, well, I think there's, you know, incredible amounts of power um, that are held by people who can make representations. Sorry, my toddler's home. You're probably here in the background. <laughs> Dressed as a unicorn. Um, you know, so there's there's huge amounts of power that, you know, councils or state governments or legislators or art museums hold in terms of who they choose, how they work with, what they even allow to happen. Um, I think Julie's example is such a great one of being able to, you know, temporarily um, alter a historical representation, you know, and that, that compromise you have to undertake to even have the opportunity to potentially make some, some real change over time. Um, there's a huge power in representation and most of our representations are colonial, you know, still um, in 2021. You know, if you look at the 
sort of landscape, the memorial landscape of Melbourne, it's largely dead white men that actually inhabit our memorial landscape. And it's it's kind of surprising how little movement there is to bring forth other stories and, and other representations. And as, you know, Julie said in her talk, it, it's complex, you know, like, do we want the same kind of representations that these colonial statues have? You know, do we want the, the brass and, and stone and the sort of monumentalism of those kinds of representations? And I think we do, <laughs> in a way, like, I think we actually do because we need those representations, but we need so much more as well like we need to be able to interrogate um cook's so-called cook's cottage i love that that he didn't even live there um you know the the cook statues that are everywhere we need to be able to add more to what exists like if you look at gippsland for instance there are so many cans to um mcmillan who's a murderer who killed gunai kurnai people he you know, it's it's on the historical record. His own family acknowledges what he did, but somehow that whole landscape is still filled with those cans, you know, and there's been no work to, to disrupt that. So I think it can feel a little bit overwhelming um, in terms of the amount of work that needs to be done. Um, but, you know, that's that's why the people, you know, people like Julie and Paula and all those people holding space and, and pushing are doing such incredibly important work. Thanks, Jen. Um, I wonder, um, Kate and Claire and Amy, if if you want to uh, want to reflect upon um, the the role of these processes in um, telling Black histories of this continent, in producing um, generative forms of truth telling that can lead to transformation as non-Indigenous collaborators working with Paula and um, Jen and others in this collection, Julie, um, you know, what sort of transformative potential are you trying to, do you think that good um, counter-memorial, counter-monument work does? And, and how do you navigate your role in that? Claire has a lot to say, I imagine, um, but in three minutes. I don't know. I feel like I want to handball to Claire, I feel, but I mean, I, yeah. I mean, it's to me, it's like quite terrifying to do these sorts of projects, I think. Um, and I think I should acknowledge that. Like, it gives me a lot of anxiety about being this person in this space. Um, but of course, that's not reason to be reticent um I but I yeah I look I think what Jen was saying before about the fact that the precedent in this book is that um non-Indigenous people are collaborating with Indigenous people I, I think help underscore you know you could I mean there's just so many blind spots making work um in this space as a as a settler and like I feel like that Miranda Must Go project that I slightly touched on uh, opened a huge can of worms for me as a researcher about what I should and shouldn't do. And um, I'm still processing it like three or four years later. Um, but yeah, I look, I'd like, I prefer to hand over to Claire. I feel like she has a lot to say and we've only got a short amount of time. So, yeah. I guess just, just very, very briefly, that I think that they're, when speaking to some types of institutions and some media outlets, um, you're, you're seen by certain people as more objective as a white 
historian and that so you sometimes you can go and say things um, that actually an Aboriginal scholar just wouldn't be believed would be thought to be biased, like in a native title claim, giving evidence about your own connection, that seemed to be a vested interest in this, this sort of stuff. So I think that that can sometimes be an unfortunate um, but necessary role. Um, and just, you know, there's a, there's a bit of work around um, shepherding um, projects through institutional authorities who, who have to say yes to them. And there can sometimes be a role there. Um, but generally, yeah, I mean, I'll leave it at that. I think it's really interesting. I mean, I guess, you know, if I might interject in one role as chair is I, I think a lot about the information that non-Indigenous peoples must possess about what it would take to change non-Indigenous Australia's understanding of this place. Because sometimes, even with a lot of uh, white members in my family, I have to say it's a bit of a mystery <laughs> what it would take, um, what kinds of transformative actions and interventions it would take for the Black history and the Black truth-telling of this continent to really uh, shift and, and transform the kinds of relations on this continent. Um, but I have to say, um, to wrap up in the next few minutes, because I'm mindful that so many of our audience members will, will need to go, um, is that you have each spoken to such extraordinarily compelling projects, installations, exhibitions. And as you say, Paola, it is all work. It is all labour. Um, it is not just... Um, you know, that protest is work, that activism is work, that the strategic decision to turn up and throw a can of paint on a cook statue to generate the engagement you need from um, the public in support of um, Black politics in this country is work, um, that these are um, deep considerations held um, by individuals embedded in, in their communities. Um, it's so exciting to think about the work that you're all doing, um, both as artists, but also how you're bringing this together in the scholarly um, collection. Um, I understand that the book title, as someone's um, asked, is um, currently proposed as the same title of this symposium, Counter Monuments, Indigenous Settler Relations in Australian Contemporary Art and Memorial Practices. Um, so to everyone in the audience, um, there's a long process ahead for the panelists here over the next few days um, to, to see that hit print, but it will hit print. I'm so excited to play a small, small role in that and thank everyone for their time and their ongoing labour and efforts in this space. <laughs>